From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Governor Jared Polis today in our regular interview at the Capitol. On health care, he's both celebrating and bracing for chaos. The Trump administration greenlit Polis's ideas for bringing down costs, but a court fight could bring down the Affordable Care Act. The danger of the courts taking action is it would literally be replaced with nothing. Tens of millions of people would be thrown off their plan and costs would go up for others. Plus, Polis says Colorado has an air quality crisis. And a New Mexican living here challenges the governor on green chili. Also, this might have been Senator Michael Bennett's last presidential debate. What did he do with the opportunity? Then, would you buy a house with friends and live there together? Co-buying is one way to get into a tight housing market. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado is waiting for permission from Uncle Sam to move ahead with plans that might bring down health care costs. Well, Sam gave his blessing, which means first off that the state can move forward with a reinsurance program. Essentially, it's a way to cushion the blow of the most expensive patients and make policies on the individual market cheaper. That's where we started our regular conversation at the state capitol with Democratic Governor Jared Polis. Governor, thanks for being with us again. Always a pleasure, Ryan. Your administration estimates reinsurance will bring down premiums about 18 percent on average. When that estimate came out, State Representative Bob Rankin, a Republican from Carbondale, said it was great, but that it wouldn't fundamentally reduce health care costs, like the bill for an ER visit, for example. What can the state actually do to address the underlying costs of care? Our work to save people money on health care doesn't end there. Uh, we're doing a lot of work around out-of-network uh, surprise billing and reining that in. There was some rare good news out of the White House from Secretary Azar about their uh, willingness to work with us on drug importation from Canada to save people money on prescription drugs. Colorado and Florida both passed enabling laws to do that. We push very hard for that. Uh, prescription drugs are about 20% of total health care costs. And Americans spend five, eight, even 10 times as much for the exact same prescription drug as they do in Canada. So there's ample opportunity for savings there, not just for those who purchase prescription drugs. And I want to point this out. Again, even people who are very healthy, part of what you're paying for in your insurance premium is the high cost of prescription drugs. So you, if we you save see money those prescription interrelated. Drugs, absolutely. Premiums come down. So do you still need to move ahead as a state on the importation of drugs from Canada if it seems the federal government is moving on its own? No, they're not importing any of themselves. They're simply uh, clarifying and establishing the rules under which we as a state can do that, which were absent before. And we're excited about their aggressive timeline for defining that. They mentioned that I think their initial uh, draft rules will be out in about 30 days. You know, some comment period, but I think within three to five months, we should be able to more formally design the program that will receive a federal waiver under this new policy. It's fascinating. Why not just address the costs of prescription drugs on U.S. soil? As opposed to creating this program that says, well, we'll just get them from another country. Yes, well, we should tell Congress that, Ryan. And um, I used to be in Congress, and I did support, of course, allowing Medicare to negotiate for prescription drug rates. That's the big piece that the federal government could do. We have another federal payer, the VA system. They are able to negotiate for prescription drug rates. So you have the VA system today, a federal payer, paying 30 40% less for the exact same prescription drug 
than Medicare, which is obviously much bigger and moves the needle a lot more. So it's almost yes, like having a control group for a study. It is. This. It works. It proves it works. Let's roll it out. So yes, Congress really should do something on prescription drug pricing, basically allowing Medicare to negotiate better rates, and that would then follow through on 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 the private sector reimbursement models, which are largely based on Medicare. But in, we're not going to use the inaction of Congress as an excuse not to take state action. So the Trump administration has given Colorado the green light on reinsurance. It seems that you're getting support from this White House on the importation of drugs. What does that tell us about the state's relationship right now with President Trump and uh, and his agencies? Well, it is, it is a little bit strange because at the same time, they are uh, thankfully approved our reinsurance, which we got in support of our entire congressional delegation, all seven representatives, both senators. They're also waging war on the underlying Affordable Care Act itself. And one of this the is ex- playing out in a Texas courtroom. Absolutely. So the, the danger, I mean, reinsurance, all that goes away. I mean, the individual market goes away. The Medicaid expansion, all that could go away because of the case in court or because of actions of those in Congress who are still intent on repealing the Affordable Care Act without a replacement. So those are things that we're watching because those would really set us back a lot in terms of our plans to save people money on health care. If the end result of that court case in Texas is that the Affordable Care Act... Uh, a.k.a. Obamacare, is struck down entirely. What does Colorado do? Are you planning for that contingency? Well, first of all, it would be disastrous. Um, It would increase rates in the individual market for companies. It would thwart a lot of the efforts that we're undertaking to reduce costs. And yes, um, we would need to use the flexibility we had as a state to try to make sure that there was something that came in and replaced it as well. I mean, I even even when it was being debated in Congress, the main issue was if you're going to repeal it, please have a proposal to replace it with something. The danger of the courts taking action is it would literally be replaced with nothing, and it wouldn't just be in Colorado, but across the country, tens of millions of people would be thrown off their plan and costs would go up for others. Would you call a special session if lawmakers weren't meeting at the time of the ruling? Uh, well, again, it depends. What We have to see what the ruling is. I mean, is, is it something that would take effect right away, a future year? How much time do we have? We would not be the only state in this situation. All 50 states and the territories would have a health care crisis on our hands uh, if somehow the uh, courts threw out the Affordable Care Act. It sounds like it's hard to plan for because it's not exactly clear what the outcome will be. Do I hear that? Oh, well, of course. I mean, we, there's no decision. You're asking a hypothetical here. I mean, what are they throwing out? Are they throwing out this part or that part? Or, or what is the decision? So the minute there's a decision, we'll get our analysis of it. We'll call in Republican and Democratic leadership, and we'll discuss the path forward for Colorado. Let's talk about oil and gas development and a law passed this spring that changes standards at both the state and local levels. Uh, Statewide, health and safety are now the most important criteria for permitting wells. At the local level, cities and counties have more power than they did before to decide what gets developed and where. There's now a dispute between your administration and Weld County, which has the highest oil and gas production in the state. Essentially, Weld says, hey, these new local powers give us the right to expand development. Uh, They've created, in fact, their own oil and gas energy department. The state has come back with a warning that it maintains supremacy. So, Governor Polis, which is it? Is it more local control or more state control of oil and gas? Well, I'm, I'm thrilled and welcome the uh, Weld County Commissioner's you know, newfound support for local control. What this effectively law does is it gives the siting and the zoning the ability of the commissioners, or in the case of a city, the city council to do that. It doesn't nullify the statewide setback requirement. It's 500 feet in most cases. So a city or county can't say, 
it's going to be, you know, two feet from your living room. It's dangerous. People could die. I mean, you know, counties and cities don't have the ability to actually uh, endanger their folks. I don't think they would want to anyway. I mean, they'd probably face liability, and, I mean, their constituents would be outraged in any place. So what this does do, though, is it makes sure that we can address the real conflicts that exist between homeowners and where and how oil and gas activities are done by empowering the cities and counties to have a say in where and how they're done. And it's not just where. Where is part of it. It's also, hey, no loud sirens at you know midnight or two in the morning, stopping operations for a period of the day, make sure the heavy truck traffic doesn't occur while your kids are going to school. All of those types of considerations can be what cities and counties work on. I don't think anyone in Weld County is saying we want to build a well two feet from someone's living room, uh, but they are wondering where their local control ends. They're struggling with that. We expect, and we said this during the debate around 181, that 181... This is the bill. The the bill that uh, allowed for local control over oil and gas would not affect oil and gas activities in Weld County very much, if at all, because the Weld County commissioners are very pro-oil and gas. They want oil and gas there. In a county like Adams County or Arapahoe County, they're not anti-oil and gas. They're not pro-oil and gas, they just want that balance, and they try to figure out where and how it should occur. So unless the Weld County commissioners want to interfere with the oil and gas industry, there shouldn't be much impact in that county. I think they'd see it as emboldening the industry even further. Well, again, it didn't create any change in the minimum safety requirements. In fact, if anything, we strengthen them because we are putting health and safety first. So, I mean, science will lead the way with regard to making sure that none of the activities that counties uh, are allowing would endanger the residents of that city or county. Now, while Weld County moves to increase oil and gas development, people who want tighter controls protested Wednesday, saying the state isn't doing enough to make drilling safe. As we spoke to Polis in his office at the Capitol, demonstrators were at a meeting of the State Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. To emphasize the threats they see to air and climate, they coughed whenever they heard a statement they thought was untrue, and they took the governor on specifically. Jared Polis is a joke. Planet's going up in smoke. Jared Polis is a joke. Planet's going up in smoke. Wednesday's hearing dealt mostly with technicalities, but the decisions for the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission are expected to get bigger and more controversial soon. Let's rejoin our regular conversation with Democratic Governor Jared Polis, recorded in his office Wednesday at the state capitol. His administration has brokered a deal with automakers, giving them incentives to bring more electric vehicles to market. He says it was prompted by a growing emergency. We have a air quality crisis across the front range. We've had uh, now, I think, something like, you know, 15 in the last 20 days or something like that have been in excess of the ozone uh, levels that are indicated for health. I mean, there's been days in the last few weeks where youth and seniors have been advised to remain indoors and, and athletes should not be out. And he says cars are partly to blame. Polis says electric vehicles run cleaner and ultimately will be cheaper for consumers. Now, California has mandated that automakers offer electric vehicles to help meet new clean air standards. I asked Polis about giving car companies state help to broaden their offerings. We have about 20 models available in Colorado. There's about 41 available in states that have these standards. We would like to get more of those inexpensive, less expensive electric vehicle models available for Colorado consumers who want them as soon as next year. 
But you've done this in a different way from California by offering incentives. It's a negotiation. We, um, you know, had to have the, uh, of course, commitment to move forward. We worked with individual automobile manufacturers, their associations, on getting their commitments to bring those electric vehicles to market in Colorado sooner rather than later. Um, show that electric vehicles are increasingly a very good option. Many of them with the tax credits um, wind up even being less expensive. And of course, the operating costs are significantly less. If that's true, if there are all these benefits to these vehicles, wouldn't they just sell on their own without any kind of state intervention or negotiation? And they are. And Colorado, uh, thankfully, leads the way. Well, not enough, apparently, without you getting involved, though. Well, we're only involved to bring more choices to Colorado consumers. I mean, if if a Colorado, it's hard for a Colorado to buy something that isn't for sale here. It's not impossible. I mean, they could theoretically go to another state and buy it and drive it back. doesn't happen that often. Most people aren't going to go through that to buy a car. So we want those electric vehicles to be available at Colorado dealers for sale as soon as possible. And many more models will be starting next year. I'd like to look at some issues that will probably come up next January at the legislature. There are committees at work now coming up with proposals. The first is your behavioral health task force. We know the suicide rate is very high here. Uh, The state recently settled a federal lawsuit that requires it to improve several mental health services. Obviously, behavioral health covers a lot of ground. But in your mind, Governor Polis, what's the biggest, most pressing issue in this arena? It's a complex area. And so we convened a behavioral health task force. They are going to be issuing recommendations to us to reinvent behavioral health, putting really people first, not systems first, uh, because there's too many people that fall through the cracks. And that's one of the reasons we see the high suicide rates. Obviously, suicide, uh, worst outcome. We also just see depression, people who aren't able to work or support themselves or their family, uh, all of those things. Let me and draw we can do some- a lot better here in Colorado. Let me draw on something you said, putting people first, not the system. Can you give me an example of where the system has sort of trumped people? You know, I'm sure you have listeners who've interacted with it, and I'm sure they felt that way at times. They feel that they are sort of a cog in the wheel, and whether it's uh, the services they don't get or sort of a checkoff box on somebody's list, uh, we really need to have a more patient-focused, person-focused behavioral health system so people get the real uh, ongoing treatment that they need to cover their mental health, uh, their dignity, support themselves, uh, be enthusiastic and love life here in our great state of Colorado. The state already spends a billion dollars a year on these services. Um, Do you think improving behavioral health will require a new investment? Well, we hope that, you know, if we do behavioral health right, it should save money because there's so much wasted today, wasted in our prison system. Often our prison system is the interface uh, with people with behavioral health issues. Very ineffective from a cost perspective and from a results perspective. So it really should be about prevention and early uh, treatment and making sure that we have a behavioral health system that prevents people from falling into crisis, which is costly not only for them, but for taxpayers and society. I'm also interested in this committee looking at improvements to school safety. This is happening in the kind of intercession. What, what's your biggest priority there? Some of it falls into the behavioral health realm, making sure that kids have access to counselors and support. Some of it has to do with the physical security of schools with single point entry uh, and making sure we have as many strong relationships between school resource officers and schools as possible. Is gun control on the table for that committee? Um, they haven't told us what is on or off the table. I, do you I don't, hope it you know, is? 
I think a couple of members have indicated that they may or may not be discussing that. I mean, I, I just don't know if that's something they're discussing. It's hard to form a bipartisan consensus on gun control. Usually it's been Democrats alone that have pursued those measures, maybe with, you know, some Republican support in the field and Republican sheriffs and police chiefs. But um, there hasn't been as much bipartisan support for that in, in the building. Another national ranking here. Colorado has the highest rate of teen vaping, the use of e-cigarettes in the country. New York has banned sales of tobacco and e-cigarettes to anyone under 21. Other states have increased funding to cut vaping. Do you think Colorado should ban vaping for teens? Well, there's a real loophole there, and we tried to close it this last session, and and, uh, we will certainly try again in the future. Right now, uh, vaping escapes the tobacco tax entirely, and yet it is a nicotine product. We view the tobacco tax as a nicotine tax, and we don't think that vaping should be subsidized, in effect, by not being subject to the same types of pricing and regulation that regular tobacco products are. I mean, it's interesting. I asked about a ban, but you mentioned a tax. So is oh, your... I, I have not heard anybody propose banning vaping, mm-hmm. um, not something that we would support. For teens. Oh, for teens raising the age, you mean. Yeah, that's something that I think is certainly being considered. But again, as long as it is subsidized by taxpayers, it will be cheaper. And whether... 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds are getting it legally or illegally, uh, it's, you know, they all have friends that are old enough to buy it. And, and I think the, the bigger issue that will have a bigger impact is if we can close down this loophole and effectively make sure that the treatment under the tax code is the same as cigarettes. To Tabor, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, a recent federal court decision revives a lawsuit challenging Tabor's constitutionality. As you know, Tabor requires public votes on tax increases, sets limits on how much money the state can collect, Uh, The lawsuit says Tabor gives too much power to taxpayers, that it essentially strips the legislature of its financial powers guaranteed under the federal constitution. That's the argument being made here. Do you agree with that argument? Does Tabor in a way violate Colorado's entry into the union? Well, I'm not a lawyer, so, you know, they'll fight that out in the courts. I I certainly don't want to hurt the ability of people to put things on the ballot and and be able to pass laws. Uh, Obviously, there's changes I would like to make to Tabor for sure. What would be the first one? Well, effectively, one that is being proposed uh, now and and talked about uh, on the ballot is do we simply allow excess revenue to be retained? So without raising taxes, would the state be able to utilize the revenue it collects? In some years, that doesn't matter. I think the last seven or eight years, it wouldn't have meant much for the state. But this year, that's, uh, you know, three or four hundred million dollars that could be at stake, depending on what voters decide. Uh, this is the idea uh, of instead of issuing rebates, the state would, would hold on to that. If voters approve that. Indeed. Let's talk about the effort to recall you and at least four other lawmakers in Colorado. Um, none of these efforts has yet reached the ballot. It's interesting, only 19 states even allow statewide recalls. Colorado's process is relatively easy. Do you think the law should be changed to make recalls more difficult? Well, you know, all we can do and all I do is I have to just focus on the big goals that we're trying to do as governor and not let these political sideshows distract me. And you know what? Political games will always be played. I mean, whether it's recalls or not, you know, it's just something you have to tune out as governor and focus on delivering for people. It doesn't sound like you feel very invested in whether the recall process is too easy or not. It's not terribly easy. I mean, they have a very, they have a pretty high threshold of signatures. I think legislators, it's a lower threshold in those districts. Um, There could be interest in bipartisan reform of that process. I mean, I don't think it's healthy for the system. 
system that, you know, legislators feel under duress regularly if they haven't taken any, you know, unethical action. I mean, if they're just being recalled over what they said they were going to do in the first place, it seems like we risk entering a cycle of ongoing elections if those were to succeed. You got into a battle royale on Twitter with New Mexico's governor over Chili's. Who's are better? You called Pueblos the best in the world and challenged Governor Lujan Grisham to a taste-off near the border in Trinidad. The whole thing made me think of the best home cook I know, my friend Christopher Gomez. He lives in Denver. Uh, he moved here some time ago from Las Cruces. I grew up in southern New Mexico for 18 years, but I've lived in Colorado for 21, 22 years now. You don't have total allegiance in one direction or the other. Well, when it comes to green chili, I do. (laughs) I actually one year did not go home and get a batch. And so I did purchase a batch of Colorado chili. And it was the saddest winter I've spent in Colorado. Has Governor Lujan Grisham accepted your challenge? So I think it's clear that Pueblo chili is far better than Hatch chili of New Mexico. And that's why what's kicked this off is Whole Foods, you know, a premium grocery store, announced that across the entire Rocky Mountain region, they were going to stock Pueblo chili. So that's what kicked this off. Uh, I think I just read a couple days ago that NASA is going to take Hatch chili to space. Uh, and so I think it showed that New Mexico chili is actually fleeing the planet. Uh, we just, we just, we are. I did talk to Michelle Lujan Grishin about it. I saw her. We're working on the details of a chili cook-off to prove definitively, once and for all, that Pueblo chili is superior. Governor, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Colorado's Governor, Democrat Jared Polis, we met Wednesday at the state capitol for our regular interview. So August 1st is Colorado Day, the day in 1876 when we became a state. Colorado's sure looking good for 143. But instead of singing happy birthday, trust me, you don't want to have me do that. Uh, We thought we'd remind you that Colorado has two state songs. The first, Where the Columbines Grow. The second, added years later, John Denver's Rocky Mountain High. The lawmaker behind that effort was Bob Hagedorn, who represented Aurora. It's so um, descriptive of the beauty of Colorado and why, you know, a lot of people love our state. I can't tell you how many people have told me over the years that the reason they came to Colorado was because of John Denver's Rocky Mountain High. To get his bill passed in 2007, Hagedorn had to convince his fellow lawmakers that Denver's song wasn't expressly about drug use, particularly the line, friends around the campfire and everybody's high. Well, high is kind of a generic term. I mean, people can... uh, win $500 in the lotto and get high over that. There's always the occasional discussion of children having sugar highs. And uh, so what's a traditional thing to eat around, you know, the campfire, but s'mores. And of course, there is obviously, uh, you know, popular uh, activities that is now legal in the state that <laughs> yes. uh, also uh, produces highs. Well, no matter how you get high, happy Colorado Day. Ten and a half minutes. That's how long Colorado Senator Michael Bennett was able to speak during Wednesday night's Democratic presidential debate. 
In that time, he covered immigration, health care, and racism. And while he took jabs at some of the other candidates on stage, Bennett saved most of his criticism for the current occupant of the White House. I believe we have a moral obligation to beat Donald Trump. He has to be a single-term president, and we can't do anything that plays into our, his hands. So well, CPR's Washington reporter Caitlin Kim was watching night two. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Ryan. Let's start with that idea from Bennett that uh, Democratic candidates have to be wary of playing into President Trump's hands. Uh, what do you think he meant there? I think he, he meant that you shouldn't give Donald Trump anything he can use for his reelection bid. Um, for example, he was asked about the Mueller report and impeachment, and Senator Bennett was very pragmatic. Um, Donald Trump will not get impeached by a Senate controlled by Mitch McConnell. So why give Trump a talking point saying he was acquitted by Congress? That plays into Donald Trump's hand. He also argued that health care proposals, the Medicare for all, um, offered by some of the race's more progressive frontrunners, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Bernie Sanders, um, uh, Senator Kamala Harris, also make Democrats vulnerable um, because it, it, it opens them up to accusations of socialism or high taxes. Again, this plays into Donald Trump's hands. In the earlier debate Tuesday, Colorado's other presidential candidate, former Governor John Hickenlooper, really went directly after Bernie Sanders. Did Bennett have a clear Democratic target, too? I think Bennett tried to keep his focus on Trump, but because you know these candidates do have some differing policy positions, he did clash with Senator Harris. Um, you saw that when they spoke about Harris's health care proposal, which she unveiled earlier this week. Bennett and Vice President Biden were very critical of her plan and what it would do. Here's what uh, Senator Bennett had to say. We need to be honest about what's in this plan. It bans employer-based insurance and taxes the middle class to the tune of $30 trillion. Now, Bennett believes if she can't be honest, if Harris can't be honest about what's in her plan now, how will she be able to defend it from attacks by President Trump? And at one point during their back and forth, he said it would actually make employer plans illegal. And here's what Harris had to say to that. With all due respect to my friend, Michael Bennett, uh, my plan does not offer anything that is illegal. Um, What it does is it separates the employer from health care, meaning that where you work will not be a where the kind of health care you get will not be a function of where you work. And what she urged him to do was not to use Republican talking points in in criticism of her plans. You know, they also disagreed on whether crossing the border illegally should be a criminal offense. Um, She did not. He did. And there were a couple of other places, but it, it was mainly it was mainly Senator Harris. With so many candidates on stage, even with two nights of debates, were there any breakout moments for Senator Bennett? I think Senator Bennett actually had his best moment and showed the most passion when he was asked about how he'd heal the racial divide. He couldn't believe that others on the stage were actually focusing on, on you know, Biden and school busing in the 70s when he said it's still a problem now. And then he saw this line, a, a connection between education and mass incarceration. 88% of the people in our prisons dropped out of high school. Let's fix our school system and maybe we can Senator- fix the prison pipeline that we have. Thank you, Senator Bennett. You know, he was also clear that the president's racial rhetoric should be enough reason for everyone to vote him out of office. And that was one of the points he kept hammering home to. Uh, Caitlin, Google released a list last night ranking the candidates by how many people searched their name during the debate. Bennett came in last, and the night before, Hickenlooper was almost last. 
I suppose one could argue that's a good thing, like if people already know who they are and what they stand for. Um, But what kind of struggle do these two Colorado candidates face going forward in the presidential run? You know, both of them do face an uphill battle. Um, The criteria for the next debate in September is actually meant to help whittle the field. It's much harder. 130,000 donors and 2% support in at least four polls. Only seven people, seven, seven Democrats have qualified so far. Both of them, neither of them are close to that right now. And both of them needed a bump from this uh, these debates the last two nights in the hopes to get there. I'm not sure that um, that the, their performances in the last two debates or this debate helped. Certainly something we'll be following. Caitlin, thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. That is Colorado Public Radio's D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim with all the Colorado-specific highlights of Wednesday night's Democratic presidential debate, which featured Colorado Senator Michael Bennett. Now for your feedback in Loud and Clear. On Wednesday, I interviewed artist Jeff Geip, creator of Cold War Horse. It's a sculpture marking the former Rocky Flats nuclear weapons plant. Geip expressed concern about the housing boom in that area. He and others fear soil could still be contaminated with radioactive material. But Arvada resident David Wood does not share that fear. He has lived in the Candelas community just downwind of the site, now a wildlife refuge, for five years. Before I moved in, given the history of the area, I did a great deal of research on the issue and, in fact, set up a website devoted to all the science. Wood, who's a retired physicist from Colorado School of Mines, now calls himself a citizen scientist, and he says he conducted his own soil tests in the neighborhood. And it came back less than the minimum detectable amount. Most recently, I measured the radiation levels inside the trails, all the open trails in the refuge, and also uh, a colleague down the street measured the radiation levels inside the, what is called the central operable unit, the part of the refuge that is, still belongs and is administered by the uh, Department of Energy. And once again, what I measured are low normal background levels. And for Wood, the history of Rocky Flats was top of mind when he bought his home. I found the builders and developers to be very upfront about this. There were pamphlets around about the history and about the statement that it's safe to live here. What I did is way, way beyond what uh, an average homeowner would do, but I also had more resources in terms of being able to read the literature and things like that. So I felt it was very important that I put up some documentation that was a good and reliable counter. Some of that information from people on the other side is historically useful, and some of it is just factually very, very misleading. Wood also says the history of Rocky Flats has hardly been erased, with clear signage at the refuge pointing to that history. Your feedback and story ideas are always welcome. You can find all the ways to get in touch at cpr.org news connect. Still to come, if you can't afford your own home, buy one with someone else. And you don't even have to be in a couple. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Legal marijuana is green. Factually, it just is green. Well, as an industry, it's actually not very green at all. On the latest episode of the new podcast from CPR called On Something, we take a look at one guy in Gypsum, Colorado, who is trying his darndest to grow weed with the smallest carbon footprint possible. Zero carbon footprint, in fact. Listen to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Homeownership is a way to build wealth, but it's a dream many can't fulfill. The average home in Metro Denver sells for around half a million dollars. One solution is co-buying. Friends or similarly minded people buy a house and live in it together. Sarah Wells is a real estate agent and founder of Queen City Cooperative in Denver, which is an example of this. And she joins my colleague, Avery Lill. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Home ownership is sometimes called a wealth magnifier. Why is that? Well, um, one of the primary ways that we build wealth in the United States is by buying a piece of property and then selling it for more than we bought it. Um, and that tends to be one of the largest windfalls that people will see um, in their lifetime because saving incrementally can be so much harder. And why is it more difficult for first-time homebuyers to get into the market now than it was, say, 50 years ago? Well, homes are more expensive and people aren't making more money. So um, the the simple math of homeownership in Denver is the average home price is $431,000. In order to buy that home, you need twenty dollars to $80,000. Um, and you also need to make $100,000 a year while, while the per capita um, income in Denver is $60,000. So that leaves a huge gap for people to qualify. And I also wonder, does student debt play into it as well? Absolutely. If you have to pay a student loan on top of high market rate rents, then it doesn't give you much of an opportunity to start saving for a down payment. For someone who hasn't heard of co-buying before, what is it? And how do you see it helping people overcome those obstacles? Yeah. Um, co-buying is simply purchasing a piece of property with pe- with somebody, with a group of people. Um, that can be certainly somebody, your significant other, or you might not be married yet. It can also be a friend or like-minded individuals that share your vision for the kind of housing that you want. And who is co-buying? Like you said, it's these groups of people, but what might make somebody a good candidate to be a co-buyer? Lots of people that we're seeing who are interested in co-buying are folks that um, are feeling priced out of the market, um, folks who think that purchasing a property is going to be really far away from them financially. Other folks that we're seeing who are coming to our classes um, or that I speak to around community housing are people that are feeling isolated culturally and want to be surrounded by other folks in their day-to-day lives. And you also see this as a tool for solving some economic disparity. How is that? Yeah. Um, so right now, as we just as we just looked at with the numbers, um, the the entry point for purchasing property means that you need to be making well above the area median income. Um, if we take a look at purchasing together, then that number of what's required for you to make and save goes down quite a bit by buying together. And then ultimately, like say you buy a house with a few friends and you um, have that house gain equity and then cash out in five years, then suddenly maybe you have enough money to purchase a condo on your own if you decide that that's what you want to do. This is personal for you. You and your husband started the Queen City Cooperative in Denver. Tell me about that and about what co-buying has been like for you. Yeah. Um, so my husband was not my husband when we bought that house. <laughs> um, so we, we, co- we co-bought that house um, with the intent of sharing ownership with the residents inside of the cooperative. Um, we're a house of seven in a big old Denver square. Um, Denver's great for co-buying because there are lots of big houses. Um, and we created a limited equity cooperative um, in 2015. 
and we share meals and we share um, chores and uh, we also, um, you know, do a lot socially to help each other in um, making progress in our lives and supporting one another. And you've got a bunch of people living in a house, many of whom aren't related. What kind of conflicts did you have to work through early in this process? I would say the biggest conflict early on had to do with division of labor and being clear about labor. Um, One of the kind of rude awakenings that new homeowners face often is um, not having a landlord to call to fix things. And so how do you distribute that labor among new co-owners? and making really clear agreements about that. So we've gotten really, really good at making clear agreements when we need something to happen in the house. Is there pushbacks to co-ops from banks or from financial lenders? Financial folks are not known for taking big risks when it comes to new ideas. Um, That being said, the concept of um, tenants in common purchasing a house together is not new. Also, the concept of um, a partnership purchasing a property is not new. So some of the work that that we do um, really relates to getting the right partnership agreement together um, to making a bank feel comfortable. And there are some lenders that are starting to see this need come up in the purchasing process. And I think of the brutal legal battles over homes that divorcing couples sometimes have. Do friends who co-buy then have a disagreement? Do they run the same risk? It's a similar risk, but like you said, it it's not um, it's not different for um, romantic couples that are splitting. And so, um, I think one of the benefits in co-buying um, that protects you from that kind of problem is really having a good um, legal agreement in place that talks about how people enter and exit. A so I hear that a lot of this is about the agreements that you can come to as a exactly. group of people. Thank you so much, Sarah. That is Sarah Wells speaking with my colleague Avery Lill about co-buying. Wells is a founder of the Queen City Cooperative in Denver. She's also a real estate agent. Opera and electronica are two genres that don't often meet. But a pair of musicians from Lafayette, Colorado, combines the two for an innovative sound they call space opera. The duo Orbiting Olympia includes classically trained mezzo-soprano Eve Orenstein and experimental musician Sean Phelan. The married couple reimagines music by classical composers like Mahler and Debussy with vocal loops and vintage synthesizers. are pleased to premiere the video for Orbiting Olympia's Blue Eyes at CPR.org. That's the track we're hearing now. And welcome to you both. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, yeah. Eve, you've sung professionally with the likes of Opera Colorado at venues like Lincoln Center. Sean, you've performed experimental synth music under the name Distance Research. Correct. How did these worlds collide? We had a... um, uh, Musicians tell us that we should record together, 
so we did. And then they said, uh, they invited us to a show. And so we put on a show together and it was hard for us to do at first, but the audience response was great. So they kind of pushed us to go a little further. What was your reaction to this idea that you should team up? I think we kind of looked at each other like, how is this going to work? <laughs> like, I'm classically trained. All I ever do is music that's written down. And Sean does not read music. <laughs> and no, I don't. only creates things that are, you know. So we just, we didn't even know how we'd communicate. Um, but I think what we ended up doing was trusting the expertise of the other and um, and just going for it. And, and we I had some ideas um, about uh, pieces that I wanted to do, these WC pieces that I really wanted to try with electronics. Um, so, so we went for that. What did you do to improve the communication or to create communication? Um, I started out in a rockabilly band playing drums back in 2000. And uh, it taught me a lot about call and response. And that's what we use with Eve's vocals. So I respond to her emotional output. With the synthesizers? Yeah. And then do you respond in turn to the synthesizers? Yeah, and I also will share what the original accompaniment sounds like with him. And sometimes he'll take aspects of that to, to work into at least a soundscape sort of feel of, um, of the piece. Is there a lot of improv then in this? A, a little. Of, there's, yeah. There's something <laughs> structured. Okay, but it's, but it's actually quite planned out, it sounds like. It is, like. and improv is terrifying for me. It's not something that... <laughs> <laughs> I can so. imagine. Well, opera demands so much rehearsal and, yeah. <laughs> and being exacting. So, yeah, so improv is definitely something that um, it has to be planned improv. It's sort of like a, the oh, way okay. you would take a jazz standard, um, you know, and, and make it something that's your own. So you have something that exists, and then um, you, you find ways to, to do it differently. So with this band orbiting Olympia, you reimagine classical music in this style of space opera. The extraterrestrial sound comes from Eve's ethereal vocals and your collection of synthesizers, Sean. Why do you think the sounds work together? Um, I play emotional synths, which was something that started out in the 70s by Tangerine Dream. So and those guys, uh, even they were classically trained, but they weren't classically trained on synthesizer. So they constantly were yelling out, key of C, key of A, key of B. And uh, with Eve, I just kind of feed off of that emotional response and kind of accompany with it uh, with synthesizers. What did you call the genre? Emotional synth? Yeah, it was emotional synth, and it was uh, primarily West Germany that was... I coined that phrase. It's fascinating. Eve, what's your reflection on how the sounds work together? I feel like they're both so lush and epic. Like opera is epic and synthesizers are epic and you have this big sound from both of them so they, they meet well. It's not like opera and mandolin, which can work, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Orbiting Olympia with a track called Mon Coeur, My Heart in French. Do you wonder who listens to the music and where they're listening? Or what mood they're in when they're listening? 
Yes. <laughs> we do, it's such a, it doesn't fit in either classical or electronic genres. So people say it sounds goth because it's a little bit dark. Um, we're, we, you know, we're not going to prescribe what people should hear when, when they listen to it, but it's definitely, um, we're hoping it's something different and, and opening their ears to something new um, if they're coming from either end of it. When do you listen to it? Our music? Yeah. <laughs> I listen to it probably uh, once a week and uh, consider different possibilities. For me, after hearing it, uh, I, I love candlelight at, at dusk. And I just think it's, it's music that transitions you from one part of the day to the next. That's lovely. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you think so. And, um, you know, it's... I'm sort of an up personality. I sing a lot of comic opera. Um, this tends to be our sort of darker outlet, um, singing arias that are sort of sexy or sultry or, you know, lush. And and, um, and then with the synths, uh, we say to people, oh, look, this is our fun dancey track. And they're like, it's really not dancey. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a beat. Yeah. The other thing that it makes me think of is, I don't know if you've heard about the tank in Rangeley, Colorado. Yes, Do you know yes. About this? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. This is an old, yeah. they think, water tank that belonged to the railroad. It has been converted into a studio. And the acoustics of it are just positively cosmic, heavenly and it's just waiting for your voice, it seems to me. Please, we'd love to be there. Yeah. Okay. We, we went down to Marfa. Oh, God, and that was great. In, te- in, in Texas. Texas. And uh, we went to the Chinati Foundation, and uh, Dave, the Dan, Dan Flavin, Flavin yeah. um, exhibit is in these barracks, and the acoustics in there are, like, live as anything. And so I just went and started singing. It was amazing. I want to go and do a piece there. The Chinati Foundation, I think, is built in an old, like, Air Force installation, yeah. giant hangars. It was the barracks. Like we yeah, these smaller barracks, and there was, like, six or more of them and each of them had this incredibly live sound and um, yeah it's it's fun singing in those places <laughs> these places have been turned into uh, like artist spaces mm-hmm. so the name of this group Orbiting Olympia is inspired by the work of 19th century composer Jacques Offenbach. What's yes. the significance? Help us understand orbiting Olympia. Sure. So uh, we were looking for something um, that tied space and opera together and um, space age sort of things. Um, in, in the Tales of Hoffman, there's a character um, called Olympia, um, who is an automaton that um, that Hoffman falls in love with. So he's, you know, figuratively uh, in orbiting her. Um, so um, we're not obnoxious. We don't make people say orbiting Olympia because that's just a little too much but <laughs> but it is um, it's you know it's an homage to, to Offenbach and, and that character what, what what was the term you used orbiting a automaton automaton yes she's a robot she's a robot she's a robot <laughs> As I mentioned, at CPR.org, we have the premiere for your music video for Blue Eyes, which we're hearing here, directed by New York City artist Mauricio Cepi, also known as Funk Taxi 1533. Uh, I wasn't surprised to see in this video a lot of outer space imagery, and uh, the song is based on Gustav Mahler's Songs of a Wayfarer. 
What did you want to achieve aesthetically in this video? That's a good question. Uh, the videos I've done in the past have used found footage in like eight millimeter um, uh, videos that people have transferred from like a real uh, like a uh, projector. Yeah, and uh, I always go for like these sixty sci-fi stuff. And Eve had a friend who was going to pair that, and he did it in such great resolution and great transitions that I felt it was good to hand over the music to that person. Huh. Yeah, and he um, he actually didn't know the name of our band uh, when he did the video until afterwards. And he was like, I made this space video. And I had no idea that it was like the space sort of theme. So we were really thrilled with it. Very cool. But it seems to me like re- retro or found mm. footage is just perfect for the aesthetic I think you're going for. We agree. Uh, you have a few orbiting Olympia recordings online. Are there plans for an album or an EP? We are always planning to record more. <laughs> yes, there is plans. Yeah. We don't have a date, but yeah. Does a collaboration like this strengthen a marriage? Or weaken it? <laughs> I didn't want to ask or oh. weaken it. I should have just stuck with or strengthen it. But what, what is it like? I think it's been really great for us. I think it's a really great project to have together. I think we're both really proud of working on this together. And um, I think, um, you know, it's not that we are without getting annoyed at each other in the studio or when we're getting ready for a gig or something. But Yeah, I'm really rigid in the studio and uh, I can create some tension. But I don't know, maybe that helps. <laughs> well, it also occurs to me that you talked about opening lines of communication at the beginning of our conversation, and that's, of course, so central to a marriage. Now you have a different way of communicating. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks so oh, much. Thanks for having us. Eve Orenstein and Sean Failing are orbiting Olympia. We spoke in June. They perform tomorrow in Lafayette at the Collective Community Arts Center. Thanks for being in our orbit today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>